Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. How often have we heard children squabbling with one another and hearing the accusing words, Not fair! It's not fair! Well, as we grow older and find ourselves out into the world, we still find ourselves echoing that same sentiment. Not fair! Life's just not fair! And it's true. The circumstances of life don't always seem to work out the way we'd like. Sickness, bereavement, disappointments, tragedies, injustice, the list just goes on and on. As Christians, we often wonder why. God has saved our souls and fixed us as far as eternity is concerned, but why isn't the world fixed up? In today's message, Dr. Sandy Higgins takes up the universal subject of the brokenness of the world around us. The whys may not all be answered here and now, but there is purpose in it all. Let's listen as he discusses his topic, Welcome to a Broken World. Romans chapter 8, and we'll commence reading at verse number 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature, or creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? Would you understand it when I say, Welcome to a broken world. The world you and I live in is broken, needs to be fixed. Every problem in life doesn't come out with a happy ever after ending. Everything doesn't get fixed perfectly and work out so that everything is wonderful. Unexpected results, tragic results, prayer that goes up, exercise, tears that are shed, and yet when it all plays out, it doesn't work the way the books say it's supposed to work. And you've read those thrilling stories of people that somehow just held on to God and Everything worked out perfectly. 
But for you, it's different. It just doesn't work out perfectly. We live in a world where error seems to be not just present, but error seems to prosper. Injustice, inequities, unfairness, iniquity. Young believers turn to precious verses. Them that honor me, I will honor. The problem is we don't understand God's honor. God's honor is not always a June wedding. God's honor is not always a promotion at work. God's honor is not always that dream accomplished that you had in mind. Yes, God does honor those that honor him, but so often we define the honor and then crash when it doesn't happen. A world that is broken. I don't know how often I have seen it played out. Just in the people that I come in contact with, just in my daily occupation. There's a couple, and a man has labored up to the age of 65. They've been looking forward to the golden years. Time to travel. Time to enjoy some of life together as a married couple that maybe they've sacrificed because of other reasons. Retirement comes, and in less than a year, he's dead. Wasn't supposed to work that way. Wasn't well, supposed to just happen that way. And they sit in front of you and say, it's so unfair. So unfair. We've looked forward to this for so long. We've saved for this for so long. We've struggled for this for so long. It's so unfair. Maybe if young Christians take nothing else away, take this away. Life is unfair. Very unfair. It's not just all going to happen the way you have it planned. How often it happens in life. Why is it that the godly suffer? Why is it that it's an Abraham and not a Lot? Why is it it's a Job and not a Bildad or an Elihu or one of the others? Why is it it's a Daniel and his three friends instead of those that decided just to comply and eat the king's meat? The godly suffer. Seems so, so unfair, doesn't it? And faithfulness, Naboth-like, believers stand faithfully for God and do the right thing. And heaven seems silent, as injustice and cruelty carry the day, apparently. Creation, it's in bondage as well, isn't it? A creation that is subject to vanity, all seems to be of no purpose. The bondage of corruption, the, the tsunamis and the famines, the hurricanes and the disasters all around us, earthquakes, countries where there is genocide going on. Creation is in bondage. Everything is groaning and travailing together in pain. That's the imagery that the Spirit of God uses. It's a world of burdens as well. Creation is burdened by the seeming futility and vanity of everything. Verse 20 of our section reminds us, doesn't it? The creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but that creation was made subject to vanity in light of Adam's sin. Creation is in bondage. Christians are burdened by illness and disability. Broken hearts. Dashed hopes, sad homes, broken world, broken world we live in. I think there's an ironic apropos in the expression the addict uses getting his fix. He's trying to escape from a broken world, trying to escape from the meaningless, senseless vanity of a world that is reeling to its own destruction. And he wants fix. We live in a world that's broken. Could I tell you not only of a scene of sorrows, but could I tell you of a symphony of sighs? Had we ears to hear, had we a vantage point from which to hear it, we would hear rising from earth a chorus of sighs.
lives. Interesting, the Lord Jesus moving through the Gospel of Mark. You all know so well that Matthew is the Gospel of sayings, and when you come to Luke, it's the Gospel of song. When you come to John, it's the Gospel of shouts. But Mark is the Gospel of sighs. The Lord Jesus sighing three times over as he saw the devastation of sin, saw the hardness of men's hearts, saw the grief that sin had brought into the world. He, he moved through it as a perfect servant, and he sighed. This world is marked by a chorus of sighs. The groan of creation, you know it so well. You'll just bear with me. These are our basic, familiar Elementary things, Christianity 101, the three groans of Romans chapter 8. Let me just point them out again, the, the groan of creation, its great expectancy. Verse 19, the earnest expectation. The picture is of a man craning his neck, longing to see something as it's coming. The imagery is so graphic as the Spirit of God through Paul gives us this picture of creation longing for a day when its vanity will be gone and enter into the glorious liberty linked with the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation, its expectancy, its pain, its longing, but not only the groan of creation, tells us of the groan of believers as well. We also ourselves groan within ourselves. But we have the first fruits, don't we? We're told that in verse number 23. We also, which have the first fruits, despite the first fruits, we're not satisfied. In fact, if anything, having the first fruits makes you unsatisfied. The more you know of the first fruit, the more you experience and the more insight you get into your own sinful heart, you long for a day. Oh, to be done with the flesh. To be done with me totally. Ever been there, believer? Just long for a day when it will no longer be me. Just free of me free of that self-awareness, free of that self-interest, free of that self-calculating. He says, we groan. We have the first fruits, but we're not satisfied. He says, not only that, he says, we have the redemption of our souls, but we're not satisfied. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. He says, but not only that, he says, uh, you have sonship, but you see, we're waiting for a full son placing and manifestation. He tells us as well that while we have the forgiveness of sins, we're waiting for the removal from a scene of sin. And while we have assurances of divine sovereignty controlling everything, we're waiting for scenes of light. We also ourselves groan. And then we're reminded as well of the Spirit's groan. And I would take it that the Spirit of God is groaning for the very same thing you and I are groaning for. Groaning for a day when all that links us as in the flesh, all that links us with our frailty and our weakness, is all a thing of the past. And we are taken home to enjoy all that the first fruits reminds us is our portion. A symphony of sighs. If that's where it ended, if that's all we had, it'd be tragic. So let me tell you about this portion and a sight of glory. A sight of glory. What a thing. Why are we left here? Why are we dealing with all of the inequities and the unfairness and the, the brokenness of the world in which we live? I don't have a full answer for you, but let me just give you a couple of suggestions from the Word of God. Could I suggest three things? And there may not be time to touch these in detail, so let me just give you the three reasons that I would like to just point out to you. It is, number one, to increase our longings. To increase our longings for what is coming. I'm going to suggest to you as well from here and elsewhere, 
It is to test our love. Test our love. And finally, it is to develop likeness. To increase our longings, to test our love, to develop likeness. What I mean by increasing our longings is that sorrow and grief increase our capacity for joy. Sorrow and grief increase our capacity for joy. Now you may say, boy, that's a big price to pay. And I think I can do without maybe a little bit of the joy and if you'll just spare me some of the sorrow. What does David say? Thou hast enlarged me, enlarged me when I was in distress. What is it that Peter writes to believers who are passing through physical persecution and suffering? Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, what? Ye shall be glad also with exceeding joy. Suffering, joy linked together. Young believers can't appreciate this. You've got to be over 60. As you get older, some of your greatest joys will be once what were your greatest sorrows. Get that. Some of your greatest joys in life will be once what were your greatest sorrows. So that suffering, sorrow, brokenness, what it does is it increases our capacity for joy. It increases as well our appreciation of grace. Grace becomes all the greater. I can recall, pardon a personal reference, but I think you'll understand because you've been there. Most of you have been there in one form or another. So you know what I mean. The first close home call in our family was my father. There were grandparents who had passed on before, but this was different. Something about your father, your parent, your spouse, something so unique and so different. And as I shed tears at the home call of someone who was close, there was a unique way in which I appreciated how the grace of God made all to differ. Sorrow made me appreciate grace. That's what life is all about. The sorrows of life, increasing my capacity for joy, increasing my appreciation of grace, increasing my worship of God. Some believers, and I don't want to take this away from you, if this is your great consolation in life, live with it, live in the good of it, and God will bless you, and I don't think you'll be disappointed in heaven. Some believers feel that when we get to heaven, all of the broken problems, all of the loose ends of life, all of the unanswered questions, that we're going to get into heaven and God is going to answer all those things for us. I think one look at God will answer every question. Don't think we'll need answers. When we see him, everything will be answered. It reminds me of a story Humorous story C.H. Spurgeon told. Told of a dear woman. She came to him in tears. Not everyone can appreciate this. Some of you can. She had just buried her dog. And she loved her dog. Her question to Mr. Spurgeon was, Mr. Spurgeon, will I see my dog in heaven? Admire Mr. Spurgeon's wisdom. He said, my dear sister, if when you get to heaven, you look around for your dog, I think you'll find him. You understand what he was saying? If you really are interested in your dog when you get to heaven, you'll find it. But you'll understand, won't you, that all of the things that we want answers to, all of the loose ends we want tied up, all of the problems we want fixed, he is the ultimate answer. He himself. That's our stay right now. That's our tremendous stay today. That's why, really, what I want to point you to is this great truth that he is in absolute control. It was back near where I live, and it was a good Friday. 
And it wasn't in a gathering such as we're in. It was in a, an African-American church in the city of Philadelphia. We could take lessons from those men. They can preach. I want to tell you, they can preach. He rose to his feet that day, and he read the story of cross and the crucifixion, and began to talk about the injustice of the world. He began to talk about the mockery of the world. He began to talk about the triumph of error that was in the world, and the persecution of the righteous was in the world. And after every statement, he said, yes, it's Friday now, but Sunday's coming. So when you look around at the triumph of evil, it's Friday now. The world is having its way. Sin is having its sway. Evil is running its course. Friday now, Sunday's coming. When that loved one is let down into the vault and the earth begins to cover it, remember it's Friday now, Sunday's coming. In absolute control. Not only does it increase our longings, it tests our love. We read there in chapter 8 and verse 28, to them that love God. Did you ever notice that in both James chapter 1, the crown of life, the man that goes through the trial, the crown of life, he's promised to them that love him. And Peter in 1 Peter, when he is dealing with trial, he reminds us of the fact that whom having not seen, we love. Strange that love is brought in in all of these issues when it comes to trial. You know why? What is going to sustain in trial are not answers. What is going to sustain in the trial in a broken world is the fact that we have absolute confidence in the one who is over all, whom having not seen, we love. All things work together, and I would take the all things here, not so much the, uh, the circumstances and difficulties of life as, as the groaning and so on that is all working together, but it's to them that love him, those with absolute confidence. He's in control. He loves and I can just leave everything with him. All the broken ends, all the tangled knots of life, all the unexplained and the inexplicable test my love. Am I willing to leave it with him? Willing to trust him in the darkness? Willing to depend upon him? But then, as well, it is to develop likeness. To develop likeness to Christ. God is using a broken world to mold you and to mold me. Michelangelo was many things, but among them, of course, a great sculptor. He said, looking at a piece of marble, just to us, unformed, unshapely, just a big slab. He said, it's the sculptor's job, his responsibility, to take mallet and chisel and to chip away until the figure is freed. Most of you would know the name of Joni Erickson Tata. She said, I cannot focus on the hammer and the chisel. I cannot let my life be defined by this wheelchair, the lung problems, the stiffness, the pain, the paralysis. I can't focus on the hammer and the chisel. I have to focus on the sculptor. There is a master sculptor at work, your life and mine. He's chipping away. Amidst all of life's inequities, life's griefs, life's burdens, life's groans, life's tragedies, life's sorrows. He's working to free that masterpiece only his eye can see. And so as he works with us, he is chipping away, working with us, allowing all the things of life to develop likeness to him. 
it increases, doesn't it? It increases intimacy with Christ to go through a world that has all of these burdens and difficulties. Just mentioning yesterday, elsewhere, it is when the psalmist is walking through the valley of the shadow that he no longer speaks about the shepherd, but he speaks to the shepherd. It's in that valley, in that area of tragic difficulty and discouragement that the shepherd draws near and walks with him. It's one thing to talk about him. Wonderful to do that. Something far greater to talk to him. And you know something else about that valley? What it says in that shepherd psalm, if I wrote it, if I were writing the script, I gotta tell you, being type A, A plus, and extremely impatient, yea, though I run through the valley, let me sprint through. Yeah, gotta walk it, one step at a time. No quick back doors. Walking through the valley with the shepherd. Your trial been long? The burden you're bearing, something you've borne for years? Listen, there are Christians that bear burdens all their life long. Burdens for unsaved. We have a, a group of young Christians in our assembly. I've never known what they've known. They're first-generation Christians. They have unsaved parents who have no interest in the gospel. I have no idea what that burden must be like. Others might. There are those that have burdens of disabled children that they live with all their life. Tremendous disabilities and difficulties. There are believers that have burdens that don't go away tomorrow, that have no answers. They walk daily with those burdens upon their hearts. It develops dependency. It impresses us with the vanity of life. It gives us, doesn't it, tremendous longings for a day when all of this will be done. It increases sanctity as we see the evil and sin all around us. It makes him our priority. And finally, it enhances conformity. We live in a broken world. There are no answers for all of life's problems here. But I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, heaven is the bottom line. Something so powerful, so wonderful, so great is going to happen in the world's finale. It will suffice for every tear ever cried, every hurt ever endured. Something so marvelous is going to happen. It will be enough. God is going to fix things. Not today, unless he comes. Even then, it will be seven years until this earth knows its release. God is going to put the ultimate repair, the ultimate renovation, the ultimate change. God help us to be marked as those that love him. Absolute confidence. His hand in control. More than that, his heart. Totally devoted to you and your need and your burden. Thank God for the one that we have. We can leave all with him as you and I move through a broken world in absolute dependence upon him. Yes, we need to have a long look. God is not finished with this old world yet. And Christians, well, he's helping us to focus on what really counts, testing our love and devotion, and developing in us a closer likeness to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he's not finished with us yet either. But if you're not a Christian today, remember God wants to deliver you from this broken world and your broken life and give you a sure and glorious hope of heaven to come. Why not trust Christ as your personal Savior and Lord today and join millions of others on the road that leads to a world that needs no fixing whatsoever?
If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is Glenn Todd. Thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul.